The single hardest question that I am asked as a pastor is why. Typically, this question why comes at the loss of something, whether it's a relationship or a career or a dream or maybe most painfully, the loss of a loved one. This is often the question that I encounter most when I'm spending time with family, the loss unexpectedly or untimely of you know, someone close to them or a particular loved one in their family, whether it was from a disease or an accident. Inevitably, the sense of tragedy is far more palpable when it's unexpected and unplanned and, of course, always unwelcome. But this is the question that I get asked, why? Why would this happen? Why would God allow this to happen? Because this sense of why gets it this uh, nagging, kind of lingering, troubling sense that we have that this isn't how it was supposed to go. And it violates some sense of understanding of how uh, it's supposed to work in our lives. Inevitably, it's often connected to this understanding of who God is supposed to be, but who God wasn't in this moment. This idea that in some way God has failed that God has let us down, that God has violated kind of his end of the bargain and his part of the agreement. Inevitably, it leads people to ask questions about if God is really who God says that God is, and often if God actually loves us. Because it, kind of the connection and the association that we make in our minds is, well, uh, as humans, when we love somebody, we treat them well. We are inclined to do nice things for them. We want to take care of them and, you know, uphold the betterment of that person. And so if this doesn't happen to us, surely this must be a reflection on how God feels about us. And so this one word question, why, is loaded and packed with so much uncertainty and so much confusion and so much hurt and so much loss and so much pain. And inevitably, in every conversation surrounding the, you know, the untimely and tragic death of a loved one, where this question why comes up, uh, I'm often pointing people back to this particular verse that we're going to hear shared here in a little bit in this story that we're looking at. It's a verse that I read at every funeral that I officiate, at every graveside, at every inurnment, at every bedside. This is a phrase that Jesus shares with us, a promise about who he is that I need and feel compelled to remind people of. My guess is that whether you're experiencing some immediate loss or some immediate tragedy in your life, whether you've recently lost a loved one or not, we've all asked this question, why? We've all wrestled with this wondering, this kind of uncertainty about why things happen the way that they do and what this means about who God is and how God feels about us. So let's jump into our story today because the one that we're looking at out of the 11th chapter of John has all of the same emotions, all of the same confusion, and all of the same disappointment and sorrow and pain that we often experience in our life when we find ourselves asking the question, why? So we'll start in chapter 11 of verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, a couple of things about the way that uh, names and locations work as they often have some uh, indication of some meaning. There's something more to the name than just the name of a town. Um, so, for example, the name Lazarus here is really short for this name Eleazar, which means that God helps. And because Lazarus is from Bethany, 
this town Bethany is understood to mean house of affliction or house of misery. So it is not a coincidence that this whole setup of this story that we're about to read in this encounter in Jesus happens to a man who's named Lazarus of Bethany, which literally means that God helps those from the house of affliction. So this is kind of this kind of subtle nod to what's happening here. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of metaphor. Um, John uses these stories kind of paradigmatically for us to understand who God is and how we're supposed to understand our relationship to God. So this is kind of the setup that John is beginning to weave into this story. So there's a man named Lazarus who is sick. He's from Bethany, and this is also the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And then in, there's this kind of this parenthetical note. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So this is a note to all of these people who are hearing this story kind of shared for the first time. Uh, there's an assumption of a familiarity with them and this Mary. Now what we as the readers kind of who are reading chronologically through the Gospel of John will find out is that this scene that John points us to in chapter 11 about Mary wiping the feet of Jesus' hair with her hair, this happens in the next chapter. So this is a little kind of, um, it's not following kind of chronology, but it's an indication that the readers were familiar with Mary, even though Mary doesn't know what, right now what's going to happen in her life a little bit later. So in verse 3, so the sisters sent word to Jesus because their brother Lazarus is sick. They say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now it's very rare that the, the Gospels will refer to somebody in their relationship to Jesus as the one that Jesus loves. This happens only a couple times, almost exclusively in the Gospel of John. We hear it referred to as the beloved disciple, and then here in this story about Lazarus, and also, in, as we'll see in a couple of verses, about Mary and their sister Martha. But this is kind of a significant kind of title and association that's given to Lazarus. And so you can imagine that if you're really close to Jesus and he was a close family friend of yours and your brother who Jesus was also really close to was sick, you would send word. And in a way, you would kind of leverage and lean on your relationship with Jesus. Say, Jesus, hey, I need to let you know that like the one you love, wink, wink, is sick. We need you to come do something about this. This is what's happening. So in verse 4, when Jesus hears this, Jesus says, in response to the message that he's received, that the one that he loves and Lazarus is sick, he says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for the gl God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus doesn't communicate this to the messenger, at least that's not what it implies in the text. This is just John helping us understand what's about to happen in this story. So this is mostly what's happening for the reader. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Again, John makes this point to emphasize how Jesus feels, the emotion, the relationship, the connection that Jesus has with these people. These aren't just random people that Jesus is encountering as he's passing through a village or people who come to him out of a crowd. These are people who Jesus knows intimately. And there is a profound and there is a deep and there is a sincere and significant relationship between Jesus and Martha, who he loves, and Mary, who he loves, and Lazarus, who he loves. And so what John is trying to get us to see is that this story is kind of paradigmatic of us. So if Jesus loves and knows and has intimate relationship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the same is true for us. Jesus loves us. 
He knows us. There is a significant and important and a depth to the relationship and the emotion and affection that Jesus has for us. And so what John is trying to help us do is to place ourselves in this role of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus to understand that we are them and they are us. In verse 6, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And here's the interesting word here. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And this is interesting. It doesn't say, but he stayed where he was two more days. Now Jesus loved these people, but he stayed where he was two more days. It doesn't kind of create this um, juxtaposition between the two things. There seems to be some relationship that John is inferring between Jesus loving them and also Jesus choosing to stay where he is two more days. For some reason, Jesus doesn't seem to be in a hurry. Now, John kind of tips us off earlier as to what's going to end up happening. And if you've heard the story of Lazarus before, spoiler alert, you know how it ends. Lazarus comes back to life. But here in this moment, you can understand what Mary and her sister Martha are feeling. They've sent word to Jesus about Lazarus, the one that Jesus loves who's sick. Jesus hears this, and Jesus makes the decision to stay where he was. Jesus delays. Jesus lingers. My guess is you've had some period or some season or some moment in your life where you have sent word to Jesus that you'd like him to come and do something in your life, that there was a loved one who was sick, there was a relationship that was struggling, there was some season of disappointment or frustration, some problem that you were needing help with, and you send word to Jesus, and it felt like, it seemed like, maybe it was the case, that he stayed two more days, that he delayed, that he didn't hurry up, that he took his sweet time in getting to or attending to the issue, the crisis, the problem that you were experiencing. This is what happens in this story. And then Jesus says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. This is kind of where Jesus is heading. He said, all right, we're going to hang here two more days. Now, after two days has passed, now let's go back. Verse 17, jumping ahead. On his arrival, Jesus finds that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. So back up again. Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha send a message to him. Jesus, come quickly. The one you love is sick. Jesus hears it, decides to stay where he is for two days. And then by the time that he gets to Mary and Martha and to the town of Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now this detail is really important because in Jewish kind of culture and Jewish folklore and theology, there was an understanding that when somebody died, their spirit would linger and hover around the body for three days for the possibility of reanimation, of relife. There was this belief that once you died, there was still the potential, there was still hope for three days. But after the third day, this was now a hopeless situation. There was no possibility for anything different to happen to Lazarus. Lazarus was now fully, completely, and forever dead. And this is what John is trying to help us understand, that there is a hopelessness to this situation. There is a finality to this situation. All of it kind of creating this dramatic scene for Jesus to come and do what Jesus does next. So Jesus arrives in Bethany, and Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. 
And there's some commentary that Bethany was a couple of miles from Jerusalem. And so what we can understand is that all of the friends and family and relatives and relationships surrounding Lazarus and Mary and Martha had come and gathered around their house. And, you know, for a period of mourning, there would have been, you know, several days of intense mourning followed by a couple of more days of fairly significant mourning. And then, you know, for the next 30 days, it would kind of be this, you know, lower level of intensity of mourning. But this was done in community. This was a group of people who were surrounding Mary and Martha in their time of grief and their time of pain and suffering who were also mourning the loss of, of Lazarus themselves, this relationship that it would have been important to them. So, verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. My guess is, for some of you, you feel more like Martha. After God has disappointed you, after you feel like you have been let down by God, by God who was supposed to love you, you're ready to take up arms. What's interesting is Mary doesn't, Martha doesn't wait for Jesus to come to the house where Jesus has been several times before. Martha goes out and Martha meets Jesus at the gates to the city. She's standing there waiting on him. You can imagine, you know, and it doesn't say this in the text, but you can imagine if you're Martha, you've always been the responsible one. You've always been the proactive one. You were likely the one who arranged for the messenger to go to Jesus to relay the message about how sick Lazarus is and how much of a hurry Jesus needs to be in. And then Jesus takes his sweet time and finally shows up. And so if you're Martha, you are worked up and you go out to meet Jesus and you're waiting on him. And as he's approaching, you can imagine she just kind of has that look in her eye, kind of biting her lip and nodding her head, ready for this encounter with Jesus. But Mary, Mary stays home. Mary stays in her grief. Mary doesn't want to have anything to do with this situation. My guess is there are some of us who are Marys as well. The moment you felt let down by God, the moment you realize that God has not done what you've needed God to do, the moment that you have felt this disappointment and loss and pain and sorrow and hopelessness, you just shut down and you gave up and you said, what's the point? So Martha goes out to meet Jesus and we don't know the context. We don't know the tone of what she says or how she said it. We just know the words that she shares. But in verse 21, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I don't know, but the way that I read it, knowing a little bit that we know about Martha, my guess is what Martha is trying to indicate is some form of, God, where the heck have you been? It took you long enough. Why weren't you here earlier? My guess is the words came out a little sharp, a little pointed, maybe a little accusatory. This is kind of the way that I read what Martha is saying. And my guess is some of us have felt this way when God has disappointed us. We want to accuse. We want to be critical. We want to express our frustration and our anger and our disappointment and our hurt and our pain. And we've got a lot of questions that we need God to answer. This is Martha in this moment. And yet she caveats it. She says, Lord, if you would have been here, our, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. So it's kind of this interesting expression. And then Jesus responds to her. He says, listen, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha, like all of the other characters who interact with Jesus in the Gospel of John, take him at face value. They take him very literally. 
And Martha does the same. And she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Again, part of the Jewish kind of theology and belief system that in the very last day there would be this great resurrection when the Messiah would return and everything would be set right. And so Martha's recognizing that, yes, there's still hope one day in the afterlife. But this situation, this situation is hopeless. There is no possibility, there is no potential in this moment now. Not in this life. There might be hope in the afterlife, but all of the hope in this life is gone. And then this is the verse that I share at every funeral, and every graveside, at every bedside. This is the reminder that Jesus gives, not about why he does what he does or when he does what he does, but it's a reminder to us about who he is. Jesus says to her, Mary, or Martha, I am the resurrection and I am the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. This is this statement, this kind of great summarization of what John is trying to get us to understand about who Jesus is throughout his entire gospel. That in him is the fullness of the power and the authority of God and that when we believe in Jesus, we can experience eternal life, both now and forever. This is what Jesus is saying. I am the resurrection and I am the life here and now, Martha. Not someday, not one day, not a long time from now, but right now. And then he asks this very heavy, pointed question in response to the statement of who he is. He says, do you believe this? And so you can imagine if you're Martha, or even hearing this today, with all of the hurt and all of the pain that we carry sometimes about what God has not done for us, the way that God has not shown up for us in the way that we wanted to, some of the extreme disappointment, some of the frustration and anger we might carry towards God. God is reminding us not about why things happen the way they do, but the potential and the hope that exists if we believe in him for things to get better for new life to be possible here in this life. And then he asks us, just like he asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe that there is still hope? Do you believe that there is new life waiting? Not one day, but now. And so Martha replies, she says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And this is Martha kind of reiterating what John is trying to get all of us, the conclusion to come to, is who Jesus is. Because when we can understand and believe in who Jesus is, it allows us to experience eternal life both now and forever. And so this is kind of what John is moving us towards, and Martha is able to make this realization. And once she kind of identifies Jesus, she's reminded of the hope that exists in who he is and the life that can be found in him here and now, she goes and gets her sister. After she had said this, verse 28, she went back and called her sister Mary. And she says, Mary, the teacher is here and he's asking for you. And I love this because in this moment when Mary finds out that Jesus is here, that's not new information. My guess is that Mary was near Martha at the house when they got word that Jesus was in Bethany. In that moment, Martha leaves, but Mary stays because Mary doesn't want to have anything to do with Jesus because Jesus has let her down. Jesus has disappointed her. Jesus has failed to show up when Mary needed him most. 
Maybe for some of you, you've kind of carried this hurt and this disappointment. It has kept you out of church or away from church or away from prayer or talking to God or having any interest in a relationship with God because you've been let down. There was something you loved, a dream that you held, a person that you cared for that eventually one of those situations died or ended in a way that you didn't want. And you asked God to do something about it and God didn't. And so you've been in your house and you know that God's outside, that Jesus is in town, but you're not interested. And so Martha shows up and says, Mary, he's asking for you. He's asking for you by name. He knows that you're mad. He knows that you're disappointed. He knows that you're hurt and that you're frustrated with what didn't happen. But he still wants a relationship with you. He still is inviting you to come to him, to experience him, to be in relationship with him. And this is where I think this story takes a very poignant and beautiful turn, especially for those of us who feel like Mary. When Mary finds out that Jesus is asking for her, when she hears this in verse 29, she got up quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. So it's not just Mary that gets up to go to Jesus, but when Mary gets up and goes to Jesus, all of the crowd who's in the home, who's mourning with them, who's there in support and in sympathy for the family, they all get up. And so this crowd is moving towards Jesus outside of the city gates in the village. And when Jesus is standing there, Mary comes up to him. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is the exact same statement. This is the exact same response. Perhaps the exact same indictment and accusation that her sister Martha places at Jesus. But this time Mary does it in the prone posture of falling at his feet. And here's what I think is so beautiful when we were able to read all of these stories together as a whole. See, in this moment, Mary doesn't have the power of hindsight like we have the power of hindsight as readers. Because see, the next time that Mary falls at Jesus' feet is not in agony, it is not in sorrow, it is not in disappointment and frustration, but it's in the few verses that follow in chapter 12 where she anoints Jesus' feet with perfume, washes it with her hair. This is the same kind of scene that the writer of John points us to at the beginning of this story back in verse 2. Remember, this is what he says. He says, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. But here's what happens. In this moment, Mary can't see past her pain. She doesn't know where the story goes. She doesn't know that there is hope awaiting her. She doesn't recognize that the, the change in the relationship that she will have with Jesus, the hope and the fulfillment, the belief that she will eventually have in him, just a few moments later, just a few verses later in this gospel, all she's able to see now is the pain and the sorrow and the suffering and the mourning that she's experiencing. And so for all of us who feel like Mary, may we be reminded that we lack the power of hindsight, that we lack the power to see where the story goes, that though our grief and our pain and our sorrow is significant and real, we're not to dismiss it, we're not to ignore it, but we're also to remember the story does not end 
here in this moment, that the story will continue and that there is new life awaiting for us. And this is what Mary finds. When Jesus sees Mary weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, it says Jesus' spirit, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. And then he asks, I think, a very beautiful question to Mary. Where have you laid him? And this question I don't think is just geographical. I don't think it's just a physical question. I think this is a question that Jesus in our mourning and our suffering and our pain and frustration, when we are able to draw closer to him, he comes to us in this moment. He sees our weeping. He sees our suffering. It moves him. He experiences the pain that we feel. And what he asks is he says, show me where it hurts. Show me the dreams that you've buried. Show me the loss that you're mourning. Show me the relationship that you had hope in that failed you. Show me the loss of the person that you loved and cared for who's no longer here. Show me the dream of the career that ended abruptly and unexpectedly. Show me the tomb. Take me to the gravesite. Show me the place of death. Show me the place where it hurts. Show me the source of all of your pain and sorrow. It's not just a physical question that Jesus asked Mary and that he asks us, but it's an emotional one as well. And so they replied to Jesus, come and see, Lord. And in that moment, Jesus weeps. Perhaps you've read this verse before, you know this verse before. If you grew up in church, maybe this was a verse that you memorized to say that you had memorized scripture because it was an easy and a short one. But I think this is a powerful verse because again, Jesus isn't immune to our pain. He isn't immune to our suffering, even when we feel angry and disappointed and accusatory at what God has done or hasn't done for us. He knows. He sees. He feels. He experiences all of it with us. And he suffers alongside of us, even if we feel like he's to blame. So Jesus weeps. And then the Jews who were gathered there around them, when they see Jesus weeping, Jesus being overwhelmed with emotion in this moment based out of his love for Mary and Martha and for Lazarus and his sympathy and empathy to the pain and the suffering and the frustration and the hurt that they're feeling, he's overcome with grief also and he weeps. The Jews see this and they acknowledge that, see how he loved him? Because this is the question that's at the heart of all of this. This is where John starts us, this reference to the love that Jesus has for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And yet, for some reason, God delays. God takes his time. He idles. He lingers. And he doesn't show up when everybody needs him to. And because of that, Lazarus dies. And because of that, there's hurt and sorrow and pain and disappointment. And the question you know, circling in the hearts and minds of Mary and Martha and maybe their friends and family is, if God had really loved us, God would have. Fill in the blank. I'm sure it's a statement that we've all felt, we've prayed, we've thought, maybe we've wondered in our hearts and minds, but we've never wanted to ask out loud. It's like, if God, if you really loved me, you would have. And then upon seeing the compassion and the emotion that Jesus expresses in this moment, the Jews, they say, see how he loved him. 
But then some of them ask again the same question that is circling in and throughout the story, that's maybe circling in and throughout your hearts and minds. Yeah, but could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Once again, there's this juxtaposition, there's this question, this confusion, this uncertainty about if God loves us and if God is powerful, why didn't God keep this man from dying? If he loved us, then he would have, fill in the blank. If he loved us, if he loved me, if he loved you, if he loved me, he would have saved my career. If he loved me, he wouldn't have allowed my dad to get cancer. If he loved me, he wouldn't have allowed my child to die. If he loved me, he would have allowed us to get pregnant. If he would have loved me, he would have made sure that adoption had gone through. If he loved me, I wouldn't be experiencing the addiction and the problems that I'm experiencing now. If he loved me, this relationship would have lasted. It wouldn't have failed. If he loved me, if he loved me, if he loved me, he would have. So why didn't he? And once again, that why question is a powerful question. And it's a painful question. But what John points us to what Jesus points us to, and what I want to point us to today is not an attempt to answer why, but to look at who and to look at what, who God is, and what can still happen in the story. So Jesus, once again, more deeply moved. This is in verse 38. Jesus comes to the tomb the place of all of the death and all of the pain and all of the hurt and all of the suffering. And it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance to symbolize the finality of the burial. This thing was done, sealed, wrapped up and resolved. This was a hopeless situation four days after the death with a big stone in front of the entrance to the, to the tomb. But like Jesus does every time he experiences a tomb, like we'll celebrate in a couple of Sundays from now, Jesus says to the stone, take away the stone. And then Martha interjects, but Lord, by this time there's a bad odor for he has been there four days. If you grew up reading the King James, this is where Martha says, but Lord, surely he stinketh. This is that moment again, implying the finality and the hopelessness of the situation. Four days gone, the soul has left the body, the stone is front of the tomb, and now there is an odor coming off the body because he is fully, completely, forever dead. There is no life that can come from this situation. There is no hope in this moment. And then Jesus says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe. When Jesus said this, he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. And so my friends, I don't know what you are mourning. 
I don't know what pain and loss and suffering that you have experienced in your life, the ways that God has let you down, the ways that you have been disappointed and discouraged by the power of God to move and work in your life. I don't know what you've buried. I don't know what situations you've given up on. And I don't know what you have feel in your life is hopeless. But here's what I do know. I don't know why it happened, but I know who is still at work in the world. And I know that any time that God is still at work in the world, new life is possible. Not just one day, but here and now. You see, we all have a Lazarus. We all might have several Lazarus. They might be a relationship. It might be a dream. It might be the way that you thought your life would go. It might be a person. It might be your health. It might be your financial security. I don't know what you have buried. I don't know what you are mourning. And I don't know what you blame God for. But God, the one that we believe in, is the resurrection. And he is the life. And so whoever believes in him, they will live, even though they die. And whoever lives believing in me will never die. And so the question for us this morning, the question that I want to end on, is do you believe this? Do you believe in who God is? And do you believe in what God can still do in your life? For there is no situation too hopeless. There is no body too dead. There is no grave too sealed. And there is no grave clothes too final for God not to be able to speak into it. Friends, let us pray. Gracious and loving God, you are the resurrection and you are the life. God, help us to believe in you and to find the life that exists in your name. God, help us to remember that even though you may delay, that even though you may linger and even though we may experience loss in moments where we wanted you to act and move, that you know us, that you love us, that you call us by name, and that you want to remind us that there is still life possible. Life possible in you. God, help us to live as those who believe, to live as those who are prepared to die. And as we prepare to die, that we can find life in your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.